The United States healthcare system fails women in countless ways. In a 2018 study by the Commonwealth Fund, the U.S. was ranked last of all surveyed countries in terms of health outcomes for women. In fact, women in the United States have the highest rates of chronic illnesses, are more likely to skip healthcare because of costs, and are generally dissatisfied with the care they receive. Our society collects massive amounts of data. However, most of this data doesn't take women into account. Because of this, many medications are ineffective and product designs are actually harmful for women. Design bias shows up everywhere from medicine to cars to urban planning and more. For instance, women are 50% more likely than men to be misdiagnosed after a heart attack because the symptoms that describe one are based on the symptoms that men exhibit. Many drugs simply do not work on women or have the wrong dosages. In 2013, the FDA was forced to tell women to have their doses of Ambien because women were crashing their cars under the influence of this drug. It later turned out that women's bodies metabolize the drugs twice as slowly as men. Further, one medication designed to prevent heart attacks was found to actually increase the likelihood in women. In short, drugs that have not been tested on women can have extremely dangerous outcomes. The world is designed for the 50th percentile male. In cars, this means the pedals are too far away from women, and seatbelts aren't designed to accommodate their bodies. Because of this, women are 17% more likely to die if they're in a car crash, and 47% more likely to be seriously injured. These biases stem from the fact that the male body is and has historically been seen as the standard form, with women viewed as the outlier. These issues are not new. In fact, they're as old as ancient Greece, where key pillars of our medical system are based. For the Greeks, the greatest medical threat for a woman was a wandering womb. One ancient physician described the womb as an animal within an animal, an organ that moved of itself hither and thither within the flanks. This phenomenon was described by the likes of Plato, Hippocrates, and Aristotle. In fact, Aristotle believed that women were deformed and mutilated men. Theologians at the time used the womb to explain the differences between men and women. The condition of hysteria was then used to assert power over women for thousands of years later, with some physicians prescribing constant sex and perennial pregnancy to keep women's wombs occupied and out of trouble. These ancient ideas have modern ramifications. Every year, thousands of graduating physicians take an oath. Most often, this is the Hippocratic Oath, a document that was authored more than 2,400 years ago. Some see this document as the foundation of medicine, and it is often invoked as a way to justify and add weight to an argument. However, the Hippocratic Oath is rife with sexism and deeply problematic. It assumes a paternalistic stance, disallows for abortion, and ignores a patient's right to self-determination. In the age of informed consent and individual medical decision-making, this document no longer cuts it. And even more so, a key principle of medicine is deeply flawed when it comes to women. Women wait longer in hospitals to receive care than men do because their pain is not taken as seriously. This is a massive point of failure for the healthcare system. Even in emergency situations, women are still doubted, and very little has been done to address this problem. When women have symptoms that healthcare providers can't explain, those symptoms are dismissed as made up or psychosomatic. These experiences of being ignored by doctors can be traumatic or even deadly. Joining me is a dear friend of mine, Abby Schickman. She's afflicted with endometriosis and has agreed to share her story about receiving this diagnosis. I got my period when I was 13, very standard, very normal, but 
very quickly, it got to the point of exceeding what my friend's cramps were and what I'd seen from my sisters. So I was in a lot of pain. I started going to my nurse and she would say, okay, I think you need to take a little more than normal. Like instead of maybe two or three, you take three or four. And so I did that and it worked sometimes for a little bit. It got to the point where I was pretty much overdosing myself on Advil and Tylenol. So I would vomit from the high amounts of pain and the, but nothing else was working. And I didn't know what else to do because I was 12, 13, 14 and having to cope with this pain pretty much by myself throughout the school day. I would know my period was coming up and start to panic and I would be in horrible amounts of pain most months and be like curled up on the floor of my middle school bathroom, eventually go to the nurse and cry and usually throw up um, and then go home. And it was like that throughout middle school. No one was telling me anything was wrong. Everyone was like, oh, you know, you're young. This happens. Sorry. I had heard that pills make periods better, not from any health class or from any of my doctors who I described the pain to, but from like a BuzzFeed video. I was really young. I was like 14. And they were like, I don't know. We don't really like to put kids this young on the pill. Have you tried like herbal teas? Have you tried, you know, Advil? By the time I've gone in to talk to someone about the concept of maybe getting on the pill, it was a whole nother month gone by, like a whole nother month that I was in pain. And at this point, it didn't like two and a half, almost three years. I finally get a pill prescription. I, I was like marveling about how little amount of Advil I'd had to take. Like the third or fourth month was like my worst day ever because we were treating like heavy periods and we weren't treating a chronic pain disorder. I was on the couch for hours and hours and hours just screaming and I couldn't move. By the time I was 15 years old and no one had been like, hey, maybe there's a larger issue here is crazy to me. And I didn't really realize how crazy that was until I made a couple other friends with endometriosis who had very similar stories. I finally went to a chronic pelvic pain specialist and I talked to her and she was like, yep, sounds like you have endometriosis. Like so easy. Obviously I had endometriosis because I had been in a chronic amount of pain for three years. And she you know, prescribed me the same prescription, but with no placebo pills. And then I was much better and I was much happier and I wasn't missing out on school and things with my friends and having to leave early and vomiting in the nurse bathroom. That's definition was the first time after three years of pain where I was like, oh, maybe that's me. As abortion has become increasingly politicized and pain continues to be ignored by physicians, the maternal mortality rate has skyrocketed. This already high number is three to four times higher for black women. 80% of these deaths happen outside of the hospital. According to the Harvard Medical Journal, this represents a failure of support systems and of educating women on how to recognize abnormal signs after birth. The journal also noted that society puts intense pressure on mothers to put their children first and mothers sometimes forgot that they are people too and ignored their body's needs. Politics plays an enormous role in the health outcomes of women. This is particularly true with abortion. A record amount of women's health clinics have closed within the last decade. Since 2011, more than 162 have closed, yet only 20 have opened. While many women's health clinics, such as Planned Parenthood, perform abortions, they also perform a myriad of other health services. Legislators have added clauses to laws that make it impossible for women's clinics to operate because they perform abortion. In fact, between 2011 and 2014, state lawmakers have enacted 231 abortion restrictions. These rules 
rules are not based on medicine, rather they are based on political agenda. One law mandates that doctors have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles. Another mandates that women's health clinics have an obscure length hallway. If that length is not satisfied, the clinic cannot operate. Each clinic closed can have direct impacts on female health outcomes. Situations can become dangerous for women who lose access to abortion clinics because they may resort to dangerous or illegal procedures for abortions and lose their only avenue of access to women's health. On the phone is Dina Kranzberg, a New York City resident and an alumna from the JDS class of 2005. She is a nurse practitioner from Columbia University and the director of clinical training for Planned Parenthood of New York City. It's a real privilege to be in a position where I can help people, um, but it's really disappointing how often people are going through life not getting the care that they need. This country has failed its people, and not just its women. And Parenthood is a great example. Uh, nationwide, a total of 3% of all the services provided are abortion services. Um, and so, for example, in my affiliate, we have 30 health centers, and maybe 10 of them provide abortion services. Um, and so the other 20 are just providing birth control and pap smears and breast exams. The other thing I see a lot in my line of work is people coming to us for care after having gone somewhere else where they couldn't get the care they needed. Something is going on of a person with a uterus and a vagina and they went to an emergency room or they went to an urgent care. And even though those doctors are supposed to be able to handle everything and anything, when it comes to the female reproductive tract, they are completely inept. Either they're given the wrong treatment for a genital problem because it was misdiagnosed because someone doesn't know how to handle it, or they were complaining of pelvic pain and they didn't get the appropriate exam. People are so afraid to manage that area and are so not knowledgeable about it. It's, it's really, really scary. Have you heard of PrEP? So PrEP yeah. is a medication that people take daily to prevent HIV. Truvada is the drug, and it's made by a company called Gilead, and it's prohibitively expensive. A 30-day supply is $1,500. And of course, the people who are most at risk are the people who have the least amount of means and the least amount of money and funding to get to the doctor every three months to get the necessary HIV test, to get a refill, and then to get the medication covered so that they can actually afford it. But... Mm -hmm. That's a separate story. Truvada is about to lose its patent. Its patent is, is about to expire. Gilead developed a new drug so that they can continue to make a, the insane amounts of money that they're making off of Truvada. It just has a slightly different formulation that they've been able to say makes it safer for people with impaired kidney function. It was not tested on women. We are not actually allowed to prescribe it to anybody with a vagina because we don't know definitively that it will protect them from HIV. But let's say they have impaired kidney function and they actually do need this new drug. We have no evidence to tell us that it's actually effective for them for PrEP. Uh, if we had universal health care, um, we would be in a much better position in a lot of ways because a lot of what we deal with in the United States um, are lifestyle-related diseases. If people got effective and frequent primary care, um, a lot of things could be mitigated much earlier. Um, we see a lot of people in the United States with cancer that's not diagnosed until it's very advanced because someone didn't have health insurance and couldn't afford to go to the doctor. I was just reading an article that um, already 40 people or something in the country have died from the flu this year, and that's largely preventable if people get flu vaccines and then if they get sick, if they have access to care.
And in 2014, Obamacare went into effect, which meant that we were suddenly able to tell people, no, you don't have a copay for your annual wellness visit. No, you don't have a copay for your annual PAP. Well, in the last year or two, we've had to revert back to our pre-Obamacare counseling in a lot of ways because the law has been weakened so much. Really, many of the problems that women experience in the healthcare system are indicative of an entirely broken system, and it's broken for all people no matter where you look. It's a system that prioritizes turning a profit over helping the people it claims to serve. And it's a problem that's rooted in our society too, things we've collectively normalized or stigmatized. It's going to take a lot of legislative reform and complete systemic changes, as well as societal changes, to begin to undo these problems. Thank you so much to Abby Schickman and Dina Kranzberg for agreeing to be interviewed. The music for this podcast was Time Lapse Tides by Asher Falero and Jessica by Joey Pecoraro, all of which were provided by the YouTube Audio Library.